12 Angry Men is one of the greatest films in the history of cinema. Listed at number 5 on IMDb's user rating list, directed to perfection by a 33-year-old Sidney Lumet, let's break down this courtroom drama without the courtroom. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today we are doing one of the great classic films of history, 12 Angry Men. I think it showcases one of the greatest directors in American history in Sidney Lumet and one of the greatest screenplays, if not the best screenplay ever written for the screen. I can't think of another film that is so much detail and so dense and still has so much to say. And on top of that, this story is still very relevant today, especially in America. And so 12 Angry Men, if you haven't seen it, we couldn't recommend it enough. It's an all-timer. Now let's break it down, Jim. Yeah, definitely. If you haven't seen it, go watch it yeah. and then come back and listen to the episode, obviously. Now, it follows a 12-person jury after court proceedings of a murder trial of an 18-year-old boy, young man, on trial for the murder of his father and basically it's the deliberation of the jury in just one confined space their juror room as these 12 men try to figure out to come to a unanimous decision of either guilty or not guilty it has to be a 12 o volt o o vote not volt vote either way 12 guilty or 12 not guilty and it's just an exceptional story about these incredible characters so well written and IMDb, this is number five on the all-time user rating list. Number, it's a, what is it, a nine? 9.0. Wow. Ron Tomatoes, it is a 100% critic score. Bet your ass it better be. <laughs> 97% audience score. Box office, it was a failure. Did not make a lot of money. Made such few money that Henry Fonda didn't even get paid for this, even though he was on as producer and lead actor as juror number eight aka davis now why is this movie so good i think the characters and character development are some of the best you'll ever see in cinema the story the screenplay the dialogue is sharp and clever also just a master class in cinematography and framing majority of this movie takes place in one confined space the small room but just using the creativity of a camera to tell the story from so many different angles when you're limited on what you can do for lighting as well as setups, it's just really exceptional. I love movies that really take place in one area, one room. You know, Rare Window is something I really love. The Whale was a recent film that takes place in one area. I just Something about these being able to tell a story in just one environment I think is really special. An effective one. Really important themes of prejudice, social classism. The value of human life is the main theme of this film, and an important one. And is, judgment. Yes, exactly, judgment. And as well as, I love a courtroom drama, but also I love a courtroom drama without the courtroom. It's the Reservoir Dogs of courtroom dramas. Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, this and Reservoir Dogs are very similar. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And on top of the point of it taking place in one location, so other than the juror room, there's three minutes of the film, the uh, uh, the uh, prologue of the ending of the court trial, 
and then the very the epilogue, which is the jurors leaving the courthouse outside. Other than that, that's three and a half minutes of film. Also, the credits in the opening. Um, but other than that, the entire film is not only set in that one room, but the entire film is in real time. There's no edits to a different passage of time until the very end of the film. So when the jurors walk into that room until they make their decision and the foreman tells the security guard outside that they are ready to see the, jur- see the judge, that in- the entirety of the film is in real time, meaning that every second that the jurors are together and every second that passes in the story is on screen. There isn't an, um, it's not like they're cutting between different parts of the day. They're not speeding up. They're not cutting, cutting to like 20 minutes later or um, even with, with the bathroom breaks, we are following the characters in the bathroom. So not a moment of that entire scene. It's basically one large scene and not a moment is gone. So the audience is really immersed into this world. And essentially this film is just a conversation and that's pretty much all it is which is what makes it so amazing because uh, the the filmmaker Sidney Lumet and then writer and then the writer Reginald Rose managed to make one of the most thrilling suspenseful interesting dynamic films of all time just based upon a conversation between 12 characters and I can't think of another film that does it so well there are other films that are in real time there's a couple of films that are long takes that's fun and all but I think that this really sets itself apart from any kind of film that tries to do real time because it does it so effortlessly and so perfectly. And I, when I, I remember the first time I watched it, it, it ended and I was like, wait, that was just like I was in the room with them. <laughs> and we, it was just like it's just amazing. And it's a, it's a miracle of a movie in a way. Yeah. And um, it's like you said, it's one scene, but there's kind of sections to it. And it's always fun to kind of dissect and figure out this is kind of its own scene. This part's its own scene. But there's really some incredible powerful incredibly powerful moments in this film i think the the knife reveal is one of my favorite shots ever when he when juror eight takes the the switchblade out of his pocket that looks just like the one that's a piece of evidence on trial slams it down as well as when juror number seven i believe is on his horrific racist rant and everyone in solidarity turns away from him and refuses to listen to him basically so like there's so many important and powerful moments in this film that's just so cleverly written and and so well done with just using one space and i love dissecting like that and there's 12 main jurors this film stars henry fonda Lee J. Cobb, Martin Balsam, John Fiedler, E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Edward Bins, Jack Warden, Joseph Sweeney, Ed Begley, George Vescovich, and Robert Weber. And just a quick correction, Juror 10 has the racist rant. Sorry, Juror it is, 10. It, it can be confusing because they, you don't actually know their names, which I think is brilliant because n- them not having names makes them anybody. And that's the whole point of the story is that this show this showcases prejudices people have not just upon other ethnicities and other races, but upon other classes. You see that so much in this film. And so the fact that they aren't named in the film makes it uh, they're anybody in, in America. And also, this, this film, what's really important to the story is that all the jurors are white men. Now, this is obviously, this doesn't really happen ever. Jurors are both sides of a case. They try to get people onto the jury that they think benefit their case. And 
uh, juries are going to be very diverse groups. Lawyers kind of yeah. are able to like select their jurors yes. to an extent. So I've been in a jury, and I'm sure everybody who's listened has actually has has either served a jury or gone to jury duty to tr- to see if they're going to get called up. Have you been to jury duty a yeah. few times, but I've never yeah. never made the big leagues? Yeah, I've I've been on a jury of a very intense case, and but what the lawyers do for both sides is they. They interview real quick people who meet the criteria immediately, and then they try to get their favorites, and they they try to get their favorite possibilities on to the jury. And both sides kind of make um, – they'll be like, okay, you can get them, and as long as I can get this person who I think will vote in favor of me. So they try to get people who will work in favor of their side of the case. So that's how the selection process happens. But this film, uh, the writer – Rose, he he was very specific about the jury being all white men, and it's it's paramount to the story working because when they first walk into the room, everybody's like, "This case is done." Like we are, we're all white guys. We all know that this this uh, kid who's of a dif- different race, he's a criminal. He's it's it's already the prejudices are seeped into it, and if in the fact that when the men look around the room, they see other men who look just like them. That already puts them kind of on like the same team in their subconscious. You know what I mean? So the the group already is a mob mentality because it's all the same race and all same gender. And so having all white men actually is the reason why the movie works. Because if you have different races of people, then it's going to be not everyone's going to be already decided when they walk into that room right away. But, but the fact that eleven people are like, all right, let's get out of here. Shut and, it's a shut and dry case. Let's just go home. It's because they're all white men, and that's why the story works so well right off the bat. And why are there no women in 12 Angry Men? There are no female characters in this film, aside from the extras seen in the courtroom in the prologue. And although there's a woman's bathroom, it can be seen in the jury room. We don't really see female characters or even speaking roles. The script was written in 1954, and the setting of New York did not allow women on federal juries until 1968. So that is why all of the jurors are male in 12 Angry Men. Thank wow. goodness that's been changed. Yeah. Y'all have to go to jury duty like the rest of us now. <laughs> <laughs> I, and also, I think that Sidney Lumet, he could be the most underappreciated and untalked about director of all time because he has made so many classics and so many of the greatest films in American history of the last several decades. And I never see him put on people's lists. I never see him talked about on social media. He is rarely, rarely mentioned. And Sidney Lumet is, without a doubt, an all-time director in the world because, first of all, this was his directorial debut as a feature film. No one ever talks about his debut. It's never mentioned as best debuts. He was making TV for a long time, and then he got the job from Henry Fonda for this. But Sidney Lumet, he's directed a, he directed a lot of films. He directed 12 Angry Men, Network, Dog Day Afternoon, The Verdict, Serpico, before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Prince of the City, and The Pawnbroker, amongst many others. Just all of those are incredible films, and, and like five of them are like all-timers. Like, it's unbelievable, the guy's track record. To, to do 12 Men Network and Dog Day Afternoon, are you fucking kidding me? It's insane. Not to mention, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to say, like, it's insane that... He's hardly ever talked about. Not to mention, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, this came out in 2007, stars Ethan Hawke, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Marissa Tomei. Awesome movie. Highly recommend checking it out if you've never seen it. It's basically a, a kind of a heist drama and family drama at the same time. 
He was still at the top of his game. That movie is excellent. And he passed away in 2011, four years later. I believe it was the last movie he made. It was, yes. But it's still an exceptional film. It's kind of like one of those underrated, like, modern cult film, like, classics of the yeah. 21st century that no one really talks about. But this movie, every time I've seen it, it's so terrific. And that's 50 years after he made his first film. So there's 50 years of an incredible career that this guy had making movies. And goodness gracious, what a debut from a 33-year-old. I mean... Like for young debuts, like someone like Steven Spielberg with Jaws, that's up there as well. And obviously, Orson was pretty young when he made Jaws. Citizen was his um, third movie. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Never mind. It wasn't his first movie. Yeah. Citizen Kane. That's the movie we're talking yes. about. Orson Welles. Twenty six. Yeah, he's pretty young as well. But it's so impressive what he accomplished. And I have some cool production facts I'd love to talk about as well. Let's hear it. So Henry Fonda, who plays Juror Number 8, the protagonist, he was also a producer on this film. He hired Sidney Lumet to direct because he had an extensive experience in television and had a reputation for staying on schedule and within budget. It was Lumet's feature debut, like we said about earlier. Because the painstaking rehearsals for the film lasted an exhausting two weeks, filming had to be completed in an unprecedented 21 days. Now, director Sidney Lumet had the actors all stay in the same room for several hours on end to do their lines without without ever filming him during rehearsals. This was to give them a real taste of what it would be like to be cooped up in a room with the same people. Because of the demands of the film's low budget, if the lighting was set up for a shot that took place from one particular angle, all the shots from that same angle had to be filmed then and there. This meant that different sides of the same conversation were sometimes shot several weeks apart. Many of the shots of the actors were filmed on their own and then edited together. This required the sound of the rain to be recorded separately for each actor. This film was shot in total with, with a total of 365 separate takes. And as of 2020, this is the shortest movie in the IMDb Top 10, as well as the only in the Top 10 to be under two hours in length. It is also the only movie in IMDb Top 30 to be under 100 minutes in length. The next film is City Lights, uh, number 35, which came out in 1931. That is Charles Chaplin's film, correcto? Yes. Um, the cast includes Oscar winners Henry Fonda, Martin Balsam, and Ed Begley, as well as two Oscar nominees, Jack Warden, and Lee J. Cobb. And I have just... And Lee J. Cobb is the detective in The Exorcist. Oh my God, you're right. He's a wonderful actor, yeah. You're Terrific right. actor. And two things about the cinematography. So, all but three minutes of the film was shot inside the bare and confining 16-foot by 24-foot jury room, which is 35 square meters. I'm not sure what that is in meters for any of you who use the metric system. But it's not a very big room. Not very big at all. At the beginning of the film... The cameras are all positioned above eye level and mounted with wide-angle lenses to give the appearance of greater distance between the subjects. As the film progresses, however, the film the cameras slip down to eye level. By the end of the film, nearly all of it is shot below eye level and close up with telephoto lenses to increase the encroaching sense of claustrophobia. For the closing shot of the jurors leaving the courthouse, they were again filmed from a wide overhead angle. Sidney Lumet claimed that the final shot was filmed through the widest lens used in the picture, emphasizing the set, emphasizing the sense of release from the jury room. And also, what the wide angle does in the opening act of the film is the actors are often framed many in groups um, for each shot. There's several people in the shots because they're kind of like our, they've they started out as a herd. They started out as a as a group of having the same opinion, and then eventually by the end of the by the last act of the film. We're getting 
isolated shots of each actor. Like you said, telephoto lens, very close. So every actor and character is framed on their own in the images. So it me- it showcases the isolation that each man has because now they're really on their own and they have to make up their own mind, whereas their group already made up its mind in the opening. That's why if you watch the film, all of those wide-angle shots, there's always at least three people in the frame It's because it, it's so wide you can't shoot someone by themselves unless they walk across the room in the corner you're going to get many people in the frame. So it's amazing how the group, her mentality is showcased visually. And then the isolation of each man finally have to, having to make their own moral decision is shown with the photography as well, with the, the very long telephoto lenses. And on top of all of this, 12 Angry Men was made on an extremely low budget. So low that if you adjust for inflation, the budget it's still only $3.5 million in 2022's money. Wow. So it was made for $333,000 in 1954. If you adjust that for inflation, it's only $3.5 million. And that's such a low budget to this day. The fact that they made one of the greatest films of all time for that kind of money is insane because to compare it with something like Citizen Kane, which is another huge, great debut, that was a very good budget. And they were able to build all these insane sets and have huge departments for each crew. And this film, you can tell, was really made on a very small shoestring budget. The fact that that budget is like still considered tiny to this day, it shocks me that it's that low. Plus, no one saw it. It didn't even turn a profit at the box office. Obviously, it's become a, a massive success over the last 60 years, 65 years, however long it's been. And it's regarded in film history as one of the greatest films ever of all time, one of the greatest American films. And it's taught around the world in film classes, even with uh, corporations and businesses to teach social dynamics and team dynamics. And I think you can look at it as kind of like a way to view different types of people and personalities because everyone's so unique. Every juror is, is their own character and their own you know, philosophy on life and their own prejudices and their own morals. And I think that's why... This movie's so terrific is the characters, every juror. And I love how we don't know their names until the end we find out Davis and McCandles, I think, is the older man. Yeah. Um, something like that. But Davis is juror number eight. Now, I'd love to go through each juror real quick and give a quick character description. Yeah, and, yeah. And then also do uh, evidence timeline. But you want us to do something first? It's just it's just the way you just said it was perfectly because every character is so well portrayed and they all are so unique. It shocks me how short the movie is. Because it's so packed with detail, and you have such a great sense for each man that you're. It, by the end of the movie, you're like, "That was only 90 minutes." I feel like I watched like a five-hour movie because of the amount of detail, and it's it's crazy. We look at a lot of modern movies where they can't even get that much differentiation between characters in two and a half hours, but then you see this in in a matter of 90 minutes, and it's so impressive. Well, in a matter of two minutes, you get a characterization of everybody. Yeah. Not to mention the pacing pacing is astounding for not having more than three scenes, really, and just having this one main scene be the bulk of the film. The pacing's incredible because, obviously, there's so much dialogue and back and forth, but there are also great moments of silence and calmness, which kind of, you know, acts as sort of ends of sections or beginnings of sections, and it chop- and it, it paces the film out so well because it's not constant talking. And it's, it's at the same time, it's a very patient film, even though how short it is. Yeah, and before you describe the characters, the costuming did a wonderful job of showcasing the personalities and also the social class of each man. 
based upon their wardrobe. I mean, just real quick, uh, the foreman, juror number one, wearing a polo with a tie yeah. <laughs> reminds me of Mac from Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> he's an assistant football coach for a high school, so he doesn't make much money. He doesn't know how to dress, so he's this is like his this is his nicest thing to wear. He might have one shirt, yeah, like a button-up shirt, that's, and it's maybe for yeah. weddings and funerals. Yeah, that, no, that that's his only shirt with buttons, and it's a polo. Probably. And then yeah. you have the stockbroker who's so well dressed, and and then you have the old man who's dressed with the extremely high pants, just very classical. And the and then the um the guy who's waiting, juror number six, who's just dying to go to the baseball game, he's got the hip outfit with the stripes and the nice hat, but very casual and loose. They do a wonderful job of showcasing so much personality and so much of where they are, where they fall in the spectrum of social hierarchy just with their clothing. It's a great point. And also, before we get to characters and evidence in the trial, the elements... The uncontrollable elements of this day also relate to the story and the thematic elements going on. You know, it's the hottest day of the year. Oh, they keep saying that. It's the hottest day of the year today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's boiling out there. They can barely get the windows open. The fan doesn't turn on until halfway through the deliberation between the jury, which they finally get it on. And then it rains eventually later on in the film. And basically, it just adds tension to the characters. You know, they're all, they all become, they all come to a boiling point emotionally. And then, realistically, they're at a boiling point because it's so hot in this room. There's so much tension. It's palpable. They're sweating. By the end of the film, they're all covered in sweat, except for juror number four, The I think, is the uh, the stockbroker. Who's, he's like, don't you sweat? No. I don't. Never. Never. <laughs> also, the fan is actually a great metaphor for the herd mentality because what happens is they can't get the fan to work, and a few people try it at first, and like I guess it's not working. So the, the group kind of has the same mentality of like the fan just must not work without really thinking about why it's not working. And then when the lights, when it gets dark outside and then one of the jurors turns on the light, then the fan works because it's connected to the same power as the light switch. So since the light switch was off, the fan wouldn't work. And then so you think of a light switch turning on. It's finally someone having an idea, someone thinking, and it's a metaphor for now the jurors are starting to think for their own and actually work out a problem and then the fans they're able to so one of them's able to work out that's why the fan wasn't working so the the fan and the light turning on is a metaphor for each man's um internal dialogue and and problem solving actually working for once objectively looking at the yeah, information exactly. and this is when the vote starts to turn like mm-hmm. we're halfway through it's great so now let's go over each juror Quick description, and then I want to give a timeline of events from the trial as presented by the jurors to the audience early on in their deliberation, as well as the facts of the case so that we can lay a groundwork for the story as we talk about the film going forward. So juror number one, who is the foreman of the jury, he was selected to be the foreman of the jury. He's a small, petty man, like Anthony said, wears the polo with the the tie. It's his nicest shirt he owns and the only tie he may own. The foreman is impressed with the authority he has. And handles himself quite formally. He is not overly bright, but is determined. And I'm also getting these quick descriptions from Utah Shakespeare Festival. Thanks for the info. Juror number two. Oh, sorry. I just want to, if I can, just add to each one. Juror number one is the only juror who never explains why he votes certain ways. And it's they wrote it as this metaphor for leadership where you don't have to explain yourself if you're in charge. You just do things. It doesn't matter. Nobody needs to know how you feel or what you're thinking. They just need to know you're the leader and you're in charge. So the foreman never explains why he votes guilty. He never explains why he changes his vote to not guilty. He's the only character never to give reason. 
That's a really great it's point. It's because he's the leader, because he's assigned the leadership duty. So it's like, I'm so important, I don't need to tell you why. Then we have juror number two. This is a meek and hesitant man who finds it difficult to maintain any opinions of his own. He's the the little guy, like the squeaky voice. Yeah. He's just kind of conformed. Yeah, he's bullied yeah. very much until he starts to stand up for himself later on. He's easily swayed and usually adopts the opinion of the last person he has spoken to. Juror number three, a very strong, very forceful, extremely opinionated man with whom can be detected a streak of sadism. Juror number three is also a humorless man who is intolerant of opinions other than his own and is accustomed to, accustomed to forcing his wishes and views upon the others. He's the one that's very irritable. They're like, oh, they worked me up real quickly. He's like, well, what? that's your fault for getting worked up, basically. He's also the one who's got prejudices and bias against the 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 um the boy on trial because of his relationship with his own son. Yeah, he's portrayed by Lee J. Cobb and... Juror number three is absolutely one of the greatest film villains we've ever seen. He is the main antagonist of the story in a way. He's the one constantly getting in the way of helping others get swayed by Juror eight's questions. And so I would say Juror number three is one of the greatest movie villains of all time. Yeah, and it takes him the entire time to finally vote not guilty. He's last. And it's yeah. really his prejudices against his son. It's against kids, basically. He hates yeah. kids because his kid, who he finally realizes throughout this entire conversation, he realizes he's pushed his kid away. He should have just let his kid be who he was, and they would have still been had a relationship together. Mm -hmm. He ends up tearing that photo at the end. It's really tragic. It's terrible. Now, juror number four is a man of wealth and position and a practice speaker who presents himself well at times. He is the stockbroker with the glasses. Juror number four seems to think himself a little bit better than the rest of the jurors. His only concern is with the facts in this case and is appalled with the behavior of the others. He also is very analytical. He's kind of, he's actually very similar to juror number eight, in my opinion, where they're both trying to do what they think is right. I don't think he's persuaded or, or is persuaded by prejudice i think he just sees the facts as it is he thinks very logically he's just in a counter opinion as juror number eight that's actually perfectly said because the one thing what eventually turns him is when he can't remember the movie he saw three days ago because you're like you're right he doesn't care about prejudices and he's the one who tells juror number 10 uh to shut up after he goes on his ra racist tirade um and so juror number four you're right it's completely He's made up his mind logically based upon evidence and circumstances. And so he doesn't care who the boy is, what race he is, what kind of person he is. All he cares about what information he learned during the trial. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Juror number five is a frightened young man, clearly of a lower social class. His obligations in this case are very are in this case very serious. Hold on. <laughs> he takes his obligations in this case very seriously, but finds it difficult to speak up when elders have the floor. He's like kind of like the one who starts to bring up. I'm from that neighborhood. Like I'm I have, from a slum. Like I, yeah. I'm from that slum. Not everyone there is a bad person. Like you guys have terrible opinions about people. And he's also. Uh, they believe that he's the one that is the second person to cast the not guilty vote after the anonymous vote because of his background. He's like, I'm, and we find out he wasn't the one who casted the second not guilty votes. Mm -hmm. 
But um, yeah, that's the juror number five. Juror number six is an honest but dull-witted man who comes upon his own decisions slowly and carefully. Juror number six is a man who finds it difficult to create positive opinions, but who must listen to, digest, and accept those opinions offered by others which appeal to him most. He's the guy who's desperate to get to the ball game. Yeah, he cares more about entertainment, getting out of there as quickly as possible, than what could potentially happen to an innocent man's life. The value of his baseball tickets are more important to him than the value of human life. He has no respect for what's going on. He's also, he just wants to get out of there. And the thing with him, he never changes in terms of his morals. A lot of their morals of these characters, they do change. But juror number six, he stays the same because as soon as the vote is 6-6, his first vote is not guilty because, like, yeah, this is a clear-cut case. Let's get out of here. I it got tickets to that game. I mean, guilty. His first vote is guilty. Let's get out of here. This is a no-brainer. I got tickets to the ball game. Then when it's 6-6, that's when Juror 6 is like, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm sick of being here. Let's get out of here. I'm changing my vote to not guilty. Mm-hmm. And I love when the uh, European man goes on that tirade. Like, how could you just put that? Like, you, we, someone's life is in our hands, and all you care about is getting out of here as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's a great monologue about the justice system and democracy and how he has this man has no respect for it. And the man from Europe who emigrated here thinks it's a, a beautiful part of the democracy of America. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That's juror number seven. Juror seven? Juror is, seven is the guy with the hat and the baseball guy. Juror six is the guy that threatens to punch juror, the juror who's, who's going after the old man. Sorry about that. Oh, okay, gotcha. So gotcha. juror six is the guy with the white shirt and the dark hair. Who's sitting next to the slum guy. Sorry, then juror number... Seven's at the end of the table. Juror number seven is at the end of the table. He's the hat. He's the baseball guy. Sorry about that, everybody. We got a little mixed up there. It's tough without names. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, like you said, juror seven, the loud, flashy salesman who just wants to get out of there. We talked about that plenty. He is a bully, of course, as well. And we find out a coward, like many bullies are. Juror number eight. This is the one played by Henry Fonda, only one of the only characters whose names we find out at the end. He introduces himself as Davies after the old juror asks to shake his name. Asks his name. I love how they say, "Nice to meet you." Then, well, so long. See ya. I'll never <laughs> I'll see never... you ever. <laughs> <laughs> juror eight is quiet, thoughtful, and a gentle man. He sees all sides of every question and constantly seeks the truth. He's an architect as well. He is a man of strength, tempered with compassion. Above all, he is a man who wants justice to be done and will fight to see that it is done. And he really kind of takes on the approach of the defense attorney because he brings up during this conversation, like, let's talk about it. Why am I voting not guilty? It seemed like the boy who was on trial had a terrible lawyer who was inept, obviously appointed to him, a court-appointed lawyer who really probably either didn't care about the case, didn't want him to win the case, thought he was guilty as well. Maybe he had his own prejudices as a lawyer. But in general, he just didn't get a fair trial in his opinion. And so... He was never cross. The evidence was never cross-examined effectively. While juror number eight, he said the whole time, this whole trial, I'm thinking in my head, why is no one asking questions that I would be asking about this evidence and cross-examining everything? And just like I said, juror three is one of the great movie villains. Juror eight is one of the great movie heroes of all time. And what makes him so great is his 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 reasoning is like he doesn't vote not guilty because. He doesn't think the boy is innocent at first. He's, he votes not guilty because he's just not sure. And there's some, there's, a, there's a great amount of honor in that and dignity in the fact that he's like, and he has to beg the guys, like, can't we just talk about it? It's, we just walked in the room. We can't just decide guilty immediately. And then 
it's 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 fascinating to see how hard it is for him to just get the guys to talk about it for a little bit, just to talk it out. It's a simple thing, and it takes a lot of will willpower. And eventually, what's interesting is that he kind of he does what he can in the opening of the film, and then he says, "I'm going to abstain," because he's he's realizing I can't get through to these guys right now. So let's just do another vote, and maybe maybe there's someone out there. Who the, I was able to sway. The anonymous one. Exactly. So they do that first anonymous ballot vote. And luckily, even though he abstained, juror number nine voted not guilty. And so he took a chance there because he realized, I can't get through them on my own. So it's kind of futile. I've done what I can. And I don't even know why I'm saying not guilty, really. I just want to talk it out. And it's, it's, it's not until he starts swaying other people where more evidence begins talking about it. It's not like he's, he, it's not like he number eight, is going is the defense going against everyone else? Everybody else chimes in on his side eventually, and taking other points, joining him. Um, it's not him doing everything, but it's it's he's the catalyst for it all. And the herd mentality is so well depicted in this film because obviously everyone's going in as the herd, but really everyone's afraid to vote not guilty until the anonymous vote. This is where the old manager number nine. He's not afraid because it's anonymous. You know, he might be afraid to do it raising his hand or for everyone to reveal who he is until he admits, like, it was me who voted not guilty, not juror number five, whoever it was. And I like that. So juror number nine, a mild, gentle old man who has a lot of wisdom because he brings up a lot of different points that, you know, these younger guys would never believe, as well as he gets bullied by a lot of the other hotheads in the room, but is defended, like I said earlier, by it was juror number Six, I believe, or yeah. yeah, juror number six, who threatens to, I'll lay you out if you if you talk to that old man again like that. All right, old man, basically say what you like. The respect for elders is missing from half the room, but it's there with the other half. And what's interesting is that nine, he votes not guilty, not because juror eight swayed his opinion, but because he's like we sh- we sh- we do deserve to talk about this, and we do deserve to respect juror number eight in the the passion he has. And so it's worth actually doing this and actually talking it out. So it's not like he was swayed when he voted not guilty. He even says, I don't think he's innocent, but let's see what happens. Yeah. Because this case, it has to be without with, – it's a reasonable doubt is like one yeah. of the main phrases of the film, which we'll get to in a little bit. But it has to be without reasonable doubt that this murder was committed, which is why it's important to talk about this. And this is why the justice system is important. Juror number 10 is an angry, bitter man who antagonizes at almost sights. Juror number 10 is a bigot who places no values on any human life except his own. He is a man who has been nowhere and is going nowhere. He knows it deep within him. He is the racist. And the script does a brilliant job of just little nuggets of his bigotry stemming and and planted here and there until his big racist outburst rants, which is, I think, the most powerful moment of the film because... You know, this jury, they've been going back and forth, back and forth, all their opinions. But here's this man showing his true colors of what he really thinks of people, what he thinks of people of a different skin color than him, a different race than him. And every man in this room besides him, every man either stands up and walks away from the table and faces away from him because there's no way I'm going to listen to this intolerance. Or like juror number four and another, they stay seated, but juror number four is the one after his rant is over to say, shut up and sit down and don't speak again. And then basically later on, juror number 10, he kind of finally sees what he is as a person. And he is ashamed of who he is. And then he eventually votes not guilty. And he actually doesn't speak again. He shakes his head no. 
and he sits in a different that little table he ostracizes himself because of the shame he feels and understanding because he walked into that room and when he was going off on that tangent believing that it's like us and that us versus them and he believed that all these other white men must feel the same way i feel about other races and they're all animals aren't they and and we're 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 real like decent human beings and like they're all monsters it's not until the end of the rant where he realizes that he is the only one who thinks like this in this room and how I, and that isolates him completely and that and that destroys every fiber of his being and then that's why he he basically self-imposes in um exile on himself from the from the group juror number 11 it's not stated what country he's from, but they say Europe somewhere. It sounds like it's ambiguous. It, I looked could it up. Be Italy could be France. I looked it up. The actors check, check. Okay, yeah. okay. So they Czech don't Republic. say it, but the actors check. Um, I, I saw a lot online. People thought he was Italian, but he doesn't have an Italian accent. He doesn't have a Spanish accent. It's, he has the Czech it's accent. Tough to tell, yeah. But I think it was just ambiguous. European is what they were <clears throat> what they were going for. But what's important though is because he's European, he's still considered like white in the eyes of other white men. You know what I mean? Yeah, gotcha. Now, he has a great respect for the American justice system, and he probably is the one who wants to hold it up most compared to juror number eight. And although it takes him a little while to start to change his vote and to think more critically of the situation, he does have a lot of honor, and he goes after people who are trying to make their votes dependent on just selfish needs of prejudice or just getting out of the room as quickly as possible and not taking the weight of account that a man's life is at stake here. We're sending this person to the to the electric chair if we vote not guilty. How dare you not take this seriously? And how dare you, you know, play tic-tac-toe over there and, and just vote because you want to get out of the room as quickly as possible? Yeah. And then the final juror, juror number— And he's a watchmaker. Yes. Yeah. The final juror, juror number 12, who works in advertising, is slick, bright— and pretty young, he cares only when Mad it comes, men. cares about yeah he cares only about things when it comes to like kind of advertising terms and even if when you watch the the film he flip flops back and forth based on who has the power kind of like you could say an advertiser would like whatever who has the most power I'm gonna go with that opinion and I'm gonna push that out into the world I do think he does change morally though. Yeah, he does make his end. not guilty vote because of that. But he is for sure probably the most superficial of them all. But he does, you, you could say, he has a good heart, but he's just very shallow. Yeah. And that wraps up the jurors. We also have the guard, the judge, and the clerk who are in this film very briefly. And then there's also, obviously, one of the other most important characters who actually has no dialogue at all in the film and is only featured in one very quick shot, and that is the defendant. And it's an 18-year-old boy. We never learn, what's really, really interesting, we never learn his ethnicity. And it's left ambiguous. And I, I did a lot of research trying to figure it out because I always assumed he was... Um, I assumed from watching the film he was Hispanic uh, because it looks like... It, in That's what the actor looks like to me. He looks like Hispanic or Latino. And the they've never, they never state what he is in terms of his ethnicity. And it's important because... I did a lot of research online and people online... From what I could gather, they they think he's either Italian or he's Hispanic and possibly Puerto Rican, because of little lines of dialogue and nuggets of information that could hint at, you know, what kind of neighborhood he, he lives in in New York, 
Um, Italian because Italians were still discriminated against back then, but also Puerto Rican specifically because they were one of the first Spanish-speaking ethnic groups that began immigrating into America at this time at, in large grove, in large droves um, after Europeans basically slowed down their immigration. It was Spanish-speaking countries. Their, their citizens would start immigrating to America. So people believe maybe Puerto Rican. But the point is that you don't know. And the point that it has it has to be ambiguous because I think the filmmakers wanted the audience to kind of put maybe their own um, subconscious prejudices onto that character and put their own experiences onto who that character is. And it kind of makes it this interesting dissection of everybody. And so I think that's it's important to not know the actual ethnicity of the defendant. And also, I think it's really fascinating that he's only 18 and even though that's legally considered an adult, as someone who's 33 years old, I look at 18-year-olds as th- they're still kind of like kids. They you know, call him a boy. Yeah, they call him a boy. He he is a boy, and it's crazy to think that, like, yes, they're an adult, but still, I mean, they still are so young. And it's it, it's interesting how the government and the law can view someone who's 18 as, like, an adult who is ready to be judged at the highest possible extent in the harshest critical judgment, but still in the eyes of someone like me, I look at an 18 year old as still like a young kid trying to figure the the world out and their life out. So in a way they, yes, they're an adult, but can they be judged that harshly? Not to mention how hard his life has been and yeah. the daily beatings he's gotten, getting hit on the head every day by his father, which they talk about extensively. Now I want to get into the evidence and the timeline as well as the background on the boy and his father. And give it a, a, day, a time-by-time list of events as they occurred according to the jury and according to the trial. Let's do and it. as it's just told to us by the jurors. However, I think we should head to our intermission first. Oh, yeah. And then we'll come back and do all that and get more into the film. Now, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to leave us those five-star reviews on Spotify or Apple, a.k.a. iTunes. Apple, you can leave a written review, which I'll read out one of them in just a moment or so. But the five-star reviews on both platforms are really important for getting us seen by new people and to grow this podcast. Another great way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of membership, $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every single tier of membership and patronage gets you access to our weekly chat, which is exclusively on Patreon every Wednesday, as well as a weekly bonus episode. Everyone has access to that on Patreon, which we usually post on Fridays. Also, every tier has awesome perks like free merch, video messages. The $10 tier is the minimum tier to get you access to our Discord. We have watch parties on there a couple times a month. $25, you get your own custom episode. You pick a topic, we'll do it for you. $100 has so many great perks, including my favorite, which is a private watch party. And then coming on the show for a fun guest segment during an intermission at the end of an episode, which is super fun. Patreon helps us do the show full time. Thank you so much for your support around the world. Become a patron today for as little as $2 at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. And like always, this episode is sponsored by our great friends at movieposters.com. Be sure to use our promo code over there to get 10% off your order today. They have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show in their poster library. Of course, they have lots of posters for 12 Angry Men. What I love about them is they have a ton of really classic, amazing movie posters from these great historical films. They also have have all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. Our home and set 
are decked out with so many posters. They make a great gift for that movie lover in your life, and also they work as a great way to express your love for film. Now, be sure to head on over to movieposters.com and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. All right, let's get into our intermission, Anthony. Let's do it. Let's begin with a movie quote competition. All right, this is a, a long one, but let's We don't want Tiffany's. We want a mom-and-pop operation in a busy place on a Saturday when the weekends take go in the safe. We both work there. We know the safe combinations. We know the burglar alarm signals. We know where everything is. I figure between the week's take, the jewelry, and the cases, the vault, there's a $500,000 haul. I figure probably six. The old dumb lady that works there, she's alone till noon. She's not going to be a problem. Interesting. What robbery movie is this? <laughs> it's, dog, it's not Dog Day Afternoon. No, no, no. Because no. no, there's a bunch of people that work there. What's a, what's a robbery movie where there's just one lady that works there? And it's a mom and pop place. It does not go well. I'll give you a hint. Is it, um, was it directed by the Coen brothers? No. This literally is also not just a mom and pop place, but it's also their mom and pop place. Oh, it's before the devil knows you're dead. Yes, sir. <laughs> Good one. Good one. <laughs> Great movie. All right, here's my quote. If certain British doctors never asked, what is this fungus, we wouldn't today have penicillin, correct? Hmm, what is this? Say it one more time. If certain British doctors never asked, what is this fungus, we wouldn't today have penicillin, correct? Sounds really familiar, but I don't know. That's Lee J. Cobb in The Exorcist. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Good one. All right. Guess this movie release year, Anthony. What year did What's Eating Gilbert Grape come out? 94. 93. Ah, oh, 1993. Nice. What year did On the Waterfront come out? 1950. Six. Four. Ah! <laughs> Good guess. Thanks. All right. Name one real-life person Ethan Hawke has played in a movie. One real-life person Ethan Hawke has played. He's only played one real-life person? No, I just named one. He's, oh, okay. He's played a couple. Okay, okay. Fuck. Um, hold on. What fucking biographer, <laughs> biographical films has he been in? They both have come out within the last, like, ten years, too. Um, he played... He played someone like four years ago. Fucking A. Who was it? It's a very famous person. Oh, man. Oh, let me, let me rack You got this, brain. man. Rack that brain of yours. Rack that brain. Well, he so he played the um, ATF agent hunting down Nick Cage's character in Lord of War. Was that a real person, though? Yeah. I don't know if it was a real person, though. <laughs> it might have been. Let me check. Yeah, check if it was a real person. Could have been. Can you name them, though? No. <laughs> ATF, ATF agent. This is his name. <laughs> All right. He plays a character called Jack Valentine. Does not sound like a real person. You don't think anyone has the name Jack Valentine? It's cool. It's too cool of a name, man. Ethan Hawke, Jack Valentine. Give up? He just played. A, he just played a musician. Fucking, I can't remember. I don't know. 
He played Chet Baker. Chet Baker! That's who it was! Born to be blue. As well as he played Nikola Tesla. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Good good question, man. Yeah, thanks. Right. I, don't know, I don't know if Jack Valentine's a real person. I just Probably go- just... A, just a representation yeah, yeah, of like yeah. everybody who was in the investigation. It's too cool of a name. Yeah. Jack Valentine. That's a sick name. <laughs> All right. What film did Marissa Tomei win her Oscar for? Oh, good question. My Cousin Vinny. Yep. That's right. <laughs> All right. We got any uh, Raider haters? You bet your ass we got some Raider haters. <laughs> Raider haters are coming around it. We have a five-star hater review, which I'll get to in a sec, too. Oh, nice. Love that. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Jay Kelly, uh, on my driving clip for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, doesn't this capture what it's like living in L.A.? You never mentioned it. Unsubscribed. <laughs> he said it like 30 times yeah. in the episode. <laughs> this is just like L.A. You have to drive so far everywhere. <laughs> over and over again. No one's done it so well before. <laughs> uh, for Fear Dobbs wrote, you guys realize Antonia... Antonio Margheriti and Sergio Corbucci are real people, not a reference to Inglorious Bastards. Unsubscribing. Chris <laughs> uh, now wrote, Romanian dictator Kashiku. Unsubscribed. <laughs> I think one of us said the name wrong. Probably you. Um, Probably, probably you. Probably you. Probably you. Probably. Jay Kelly, best martial arts movie. Clearly never seen Napoleon Dynamite. Unsubscribed. <laughs> What's the, uh, the guy's name? The, the dojo guy? Uh, oh yeah, I can't Rex? remember the guy. The guy from I think it's Office like, Space. I think it's Rex. Yeah, something like that. Uh, Jazzy Jeff wrote uh, on your Superman Legacy poster that you made uh, with uh, from Pearl, Pearl getting stabbed. He wrote, "If this isn't the actual poster, I'm unsubscribing." <laughs> I made a fun edit <laughs> of uh, David Cornsweet's character dying, bleeding out of his mouth as a Superman Legacy poster with Pearl in the background <laughs> screaming. <laughs> it's great. And once upon a time in Hollywood episode, uh, Jenna Chica commented uh, something funny, and I wrote, I, I replied, "This is a private road." I misspelled private, and she responded, "Private, private, y'all can't even type." Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> and then, sorry, there's one more. One more, fellas. I just watched The Flash last night. The CGI was finished when you saw it. Unsubscribed. <laughs> but in all serious, it wasn't a bad movie. It was funny. Had some good action. And Michael Shannon. I totally get that Ezra hate, though. Cool. That's it. All right. That's all. We have a five-star review. So thanks for leaving a five-star review, MOR28. And they wrote, I love the podcast. However, their title was Please Stop. Let me see if we can sway your opinion here. So MOR wrote, I love the podcast. I just wish these would stop pretending like the crap that was put out in the 1920s are great cinema. Charlie Chaplin making a top 100 list as a greatest movie is a joke. Maybe most influential, but can you really watch a Chaplin film and say there are not 100 better movies? When you take into account story, cinematography, effects, acting, editing, lighting, etc., I just don't see anything from that time period being anything other than unfunny and mediocre at best. Keep up the good work. Thanks for the for the five-star review and more. We appreciate you listening. And... I think that w- w- with any art form, whether it's music, painting, 
Or even, I mean, you can talk about sports like this too. It's I mean, like saying you, Babe Ruth's not yeah, the best is Babe player. Is Babe Ruth not ever. one of the best? Is yeah. Babe Ruth not a top 100 player of all time? If because Babe, yeah. I could have probably played in the major leagues back then if I went back in yeah. time. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, it's a different time, different era. I think you have to add context to the filmmaking qualities as well as they were pushing boundaries. And Charlie Chaplin's one of the most important filmmakers so inventive. of the 20th century in the history of cinema. I mean, cinema wouldn't be what it is today without Charlie Chaplin. We can all agree on that. So, I think. Out of respect to what he accomplished and him and his crews and filmmaking teams accomplished as well as the characters he created, the stories he wrote, the movies he directed, I, I feel like it's important to look to the past and uh, you can't just look to 1970 going forward and or even the two, like most people just look at the movies of the 2000s. Of course, the craft of filmmaking is so insanely advanced today that the average movie today blows a movie from the 1930s out of the water from the production standpoint, but there's, you have to add context to errors, and errors are important to talk about. It's important to any art form. You wouldn't talk about just one specific era of art. You wouldn't just talk about one specific era of music. So I think it's important to always look to the past and look at the entire art form of cinema as a whole from its inception to now. And also, I'm not sure people realize that, you know, when in the early days of filmmaking, the cameras were so big. And the film was, it was still such a new medium. It's not like nowadays where you have incredible cameras and you have video village and you have incredible technology with the what you can do with the camera and how you can move it. Uh, cranes, incredible dolly, steady cams, all, this, all these pieces of machinery that make filmmaking so spectacular nowadays. And on top of that, you have visual effects and, and editing and stuff. But like, you know, back then, they were... They were doing the best they could with what they had. You could barely move a camera. They were gigantic. Uh, the film was just very limited with his photography. But still, Charlie Chaplin, amongst other great silent film era people, uh, filmmakers and actors, they, they were able to tell incredible stories using lots of like uh, illusion and ingenuity, inventiveness, um, kind of like a stage play. You know, One of my favorite examples is uh, Charlie Chaplin skating on the edge of and then he keeps creeping on the edge and you think he's gonna fall down the rollerblading one uh, it's it's it rollerblading Dro- yeah rollerblading sorry you keep thinking he's gonna fall off the edge but in reality it was just painted on the floor the mat painting of like a drop not on the floor it's, it's yeah. in front of the camera yeah sorry it's in front like of the camera yeah panel and it's just an incredible illusion you know that's how they got these incredible effects and that's how they told their stories because. That was like the only way to do it, and they were they were figuring things out as they were going. But it was such a limited limiting process of what they could do, and so you have, it took a lot of ingenuity, and even even up until the seventies, even up in, in into the eighties, and when they started being able to have video village on set, it's still just like guesswork. Like you have a camera and you have film, and you're setting lights up and you're setting the shot up, but you're like, okay, we'll see how it looks tomorrow when we look at the dailies. You know what I mean? It's not like now where you can frame it and just keep you can just look on a TV screen of what the shot looks like and you just then just accordingly and do whatever you want but like back then like you just had to do it and just see what it, see what happened see what it looked like after the fact and there's something really incredible about that uh, and you also have to, you have to look at those films and with that kind of a, a lens and then that'll make you really be like you know what this is an exceptional thing that they were actually able to pull this off yeah and it's not for everybody. You know, it's one of those things where it develops your taste in it, or it increases your palate, I would say, for cinema. If you go back and watch movies from the 20s and 30s and 40s, 
it's not for everybody, especially if you're accustomed to watching, you know, modern cinema or cinema from like 1970 on. But I mean, I, I think it's tough to if you ever see Metropolis from Fritz Lang came out in 1927. If you watch that movie and it's impossible not to consider that a hundred greatest movie of all time. I put that in my list as well. So th there, there's a reason why movies are so great today. And it's because of the movies of Charlie Chaplin and Fritz Lang and these great filmmakers. Yeah. And there's one I watched um, earlier this year called Vampire, which came out in like 26. With the Y in it, Vampire. Yeah, with the Y in it. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the most incredible films I've ever seen. It was it's exceptional. You should we should watch it sometime. And the cinematography and lighting. When I watch movies like that, when they're really well done, it it's like it blows my mind that they did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You should you should watch that. It, it was it, not easy to do. It's it's that movie. It's just like the most one of the most visually stunning films I've ever seen. They didn't have green screens. Yeah. <laughs> it was made a hundred years ago, and I was like flabbergasted watching it. Well, they had sort of screens like you can. You, but the thing with the silent film era in old films, especially that in the twenties, it's the illusion of magic. Like yeah. There, it still was creating magic in a way, and a lot of that's gone these days. But, hey, we appreciate the five-star review. We yeah. appreciate you listening. Hopefully, we helped sway your opinion a little bit. But And I highly recommend checking out Metropolis. That's a movie from the 1920s that you watch, and you're like, how the fuck they do this? This is incredible. <laughs> Let's get back into oh, – I'm sorry, stream recommendations. I love courtroom dramas, and one of my favorites that I think is a little underrated is Fracture, starring Anthony Hopkins and Ryan Gosling. Highly recommend checking this out if you haven't seen it yet. It was before Gosling really blew up. I think this was like right before Drive in like 2007 it came out. And Drive was 2009. So he was on the come up. He had already got an Oscar nomination for Half Nelson, of course. But like this was like, I think, a great role for him critically and acting-wise to get his chops out there. Then Ides of March for sure was a big one for him too. It's a great movie. And um, him and Anthony Hopkins are fantastic together. I recommend today The Great Escape which is available on Max, the place, the one to watch for The Great Escape. Rest in peace, Rick Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> so the scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, where we get the flashback of Rick's being inserted into that film as like his hope, it's from The Great Escape. And it's, it's my favorite prisoner of war film. It's one of the best uh, just war films in general. Um, it's just really fantastic. Will you still be here when I get back? <laughs> <laughs> all right let's get back into our episode on 12 angry men i want to go through the court stuff and the evidence in a timeline of events now first thing i want to bring up is reasonable doubt what does this mean reasonable doubt is a legal terminology referring to insufficient evidence that prevents a judge or jury from convicting convicting a defendant of a crime it is the traditional standard of proof that must be acceded to secure a guilty verdict in a criminal case, in a court of law, in a criminal case, it is the job of the prosecution to convince the jury that the defendant is guilty of the crime with which he or she has been charged and therefore should be convicted. The phrase beyond a reasonable doubt means that the evidence presented and the arguments put forward by the prosecution establish the defendant's guilt so clearly that they must be accepted as fact by any rational person. If the jury cannot say with certainty Based on the evidence presented that the defendant is guilty, then there is reasonable doubt and they are obligated to return a non-guilty verdict. Now, the thing with this film is reasonable doubt is brought up so often. So many of the jurors, until they're convinced otherwise, they don't really take into consideration what this means, reasonable doubt. 
they don't even really care about it until they start hearing facts against the what was presented and in, in the case. And some of them don't even understand it. Because exactly. Juror eleven, the European, tells juror seven, "You might not understand exactly what the third aspect of reasonable doubt means." And and he, juror seven, is so offended that a European would know more. He's like, "How could?" And he even says, "Like, look at these. They come here. They they act like they can run the place." He doesn't understand reasonable doubt. And he's so prejudiced towards an outsider, a European, that he won't even think about it. He's just a, he's just offended that this outsider thinks he knows more than he that thinks he knows knows more about the justice system than he does. That's a great example of not particularly understanding the nuances of reasonable doubt. And there can be so much evidence against a defendant, and like ninety five percent probability that they are guilty. But there's, if there's still 5% of like, I don't know, though, like, what about this one thing? That is reasonable doubt. You're legally obligated to say not guilty. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's the whole point of reasonable doubt. You have to prove it so effectively and so well that it is a complete no-brainer without prejudices involved, without personal opinions of wanting to get out of there involved or connections to the defendant and whatnot. So reasonable doubt is really important in this film. I also want to go through a timeline of events and evidence as presented by the court in the trial and the jury to the audience. So when the boy was 14 years old, his father started abusing him. Basically every day of his life, he went through hell with his father. And then let's see a jury in 10 years before the trial, a jury found that the foreman's uncle's friend was on a set a murder f- hold on was on set a murder free blah 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 hold on the mother okay 10 years before the trial the boy lost his mother so when he was eight years old his mother died he was just alone with his father and the abuse became even worse well, when the boy was 14 years old he was sent to a reform school for knife fighting he's been multiple he's been arrested multiple times he's brought up multiple times of being good with a knife and that switchblade that supposedly fell out of his pocket and then also more abuse when he was 15 years old the defendant ran away from home and then also let's get to the timeline of evidence of the night of the murder according to the timeline of events presented in the trial so at 8 p.m the kid has an argument with his father and leaves the house after getting hit several times neighbors down the hall heard the boy get hit twice and walk angrily out of the apartment. At 8.15, the kid went directly to a junk shop and bought a switchblade as a gift for his friend. At 8.45 p.m., the kid ran into three of his friends in front of a diner. At 9.45 p.m., the kid left his friends after talking with them for an hour. During this time, the kid showed his friends the switch knife he bought. At 10 p.m., the kid arrived home. At 11.30 p.m., the kid went to an all-night movie. At some point in the night, the knife fell out through a hole in his pocket. At 12.10 a.m., the old man downstairs heard a kid shout, I'm going to kill you! A second later, he heard the body fall and ran to see the kid running down the stairs and out of the house. The woman across the street sees the kid stab his father in the chest through the windows of an empty passing elevated train. This all happened at 12.10 a.m. At 3.15 a.m., the kid returns home to find himself arrested and his father dead. This is also where he was interrogated by police next to the body of his dead father. 
That is the timeline of events of what was presented on the trial. Nice. As well Up to speed. As well as evidence, we have that switchblade with a very unique carving of what looks like kind of like a dragon, which the jur- the the prosecution presents as incredibly rare. And obviously, this is the knife. And of course, how could it have fallen through the pocket of a, a hole in a pocket? Very, very uh, coincidental. And it's it's so fascinating how um, the jurors eventually seeing that you know just because this is witness testimony doesn't make it fact. And people can be wrong, and people can be prejudiced. And we learn that the old man, um, through juror number nine, being an old man and empathizing with that man and being like, you know what, this man, this old man, nobody has ever listened to him. He's been nothing his whole life, and now is his chance for people to actually want to know his opinion. So maybe he's throwing in some, he's embellishing his witness testimony. He wants to be quoted. Yeah, yeah, wants to be quoted. Wants somebody to actually hear his voice. He's desperate just to be heard. And so that influenced the old man into, you know, lying, fibbing a little bit about how long it took him to get across the hallway to to look out and see the man on the see the boy on the steps running away, the old man said testified that it took him 15 seconds, and then when they test the walk, it took 42 seconds, 41, 41 seconds. Wise ass. <laughs> and so, what I love is how throughout the course of the film, we keep encountering contradictions to things that we that the jury believed outright as absolute fact. Another one being the the woman witnessing. The stabbing taking place through the L train without her glasses on. And her testimony, they believed it straight away, of course, when she was on trial and put on the witness stand. But then they start questioning, didn't she have these dark spots on her nose, meaning that she wears glasses? I mean, she wasn't wearing glasses in the courtroom because she wanted to look nice and uh, she recently dyed her hair. And so they realized she wasn't wearing her glasses when she saw that. Saw through the windows. Maybe 60 feet. Yeah, 60 feet through the L train windows. So maybe we have a case of someone who's looking for attention. And can you really trust this witness testimony? And then also you hear the testimony of them hearing um, the the screaming of I'll kill you. And then the body dropping literally an instant later. And then juror number eight reveals that having lived outside of an L train himself, whenever it ran through... You could barely hear your own your own thoughts because it was so loud. So the fact that they heard this correctly can't be completely true. And so it's interesting to see how this witness testimony, all this circumstantial evidence, is thought of being absolute fact by the by the group immediately, without question. And it takes this conversation to really start poking holes in all of these theories. And one of my favorites is the movie, The Alibi of the Boy, when he said he went to go see, what was it, two movies back-to-back, something like that. And everyone says, that, how can you not remember what movies you saw? Because when he was trying, when he was getting interrogated, not only was he in the apartment that he had just come home from, his father was dead on the floor next to him. He's probably being intimidated by the police that were interrogating him, and he was under in- insane emotional distress now when juror eight is talking to juror number four like what'd you do yesterday what'd you do the day before what'd you do what'd you do monday what'd you do sunday and then sunday was the or monday was the day he went to see two movies with his wife and he barely remembered the first name of the first movie it had to get corrected from the second movie he couldn't even really remember the title and he couldn't remember who was in it and juror number eight like but you weren't even under emotional distress were you i was not and he starts sweating then 
Exactly. That's the only time he sweats. Also, so there's a bunch of contradictions too that are revealed by by some of the jurors, the men who are defending the guilty verdict. So, three, specifically, juror number three yeah. going against juror number eight. He proves juror number eight right so many times. Yeah, so here are a couple of my favorites, and they're just so brilliant. And it's just dialogue. Um, I can't remember exactly the context, but then he says, but someone says, this isn't an exact science. And then juror eight says, exactly. It's not an exact science. It's juror number science. three. Yeah, it's not an exact science. He's basically making his point for him by saying it's not an exact science. And then another great one is, I believe it's juror, juror number six, or I believe juror six, and he says, um, oh, just juror, juror 10, he says, he don't even speak English good. He, sa- he says, the boy don't even speak good English. And then someone, another juror corrects him, he doesn't even speak good English. The European. Yeah, the European corrects him. And then juror number three, defending the old man as as witness testimony that can't be in, that is infallible there's no way this old man is wrong um and then they start destroying him and then juror three goes he's an old man how can he be positive of anything when, when he's trying when he's um arguing with number nine he's always confused yeah and so he's he's making the case like how can you if if number nine can't be positive of anything for being old how can the witness be positive of, any, of anything for being old and then obviously my favorite one is when Juror 3 gets so upset, he threatens, I'll kill, I'll kill him, I'll kill you, to the other juror, proving the point that, you know, just saying I'll kill you does not mean that you're going to kill that person. Juror 8 goes, you don't really mean kill me, do you? And then he's like, oh, he, you know, he was just trying to rile me up, you know. You know <laughs> I was, I, it's just, it was just a weird, weird thing. So in those cases, he makes the point for... The not guilty verdict, even though he's trying to defend the guilty verdict. It's so clever, and I love the breaking down of all evidence. And the the great thing about this film is it's still, you don't exactly know what happened. And we may he never know. He could still be guilty. As Juris 8 says multiple times, I don't know. He could still be the killer. I'm not saying he didn't kill his father. I'm saying the evidence that was presented to us we have to look at it all objectively. That is our job as jury. We're not here to be executioners. We're not here just trying to get out of here. The life matters. Human life and the value of it really matters. And we have to give this trial due justice and objectively look at all the information. When they start pulling out all the inf- all the evidence, I think it's great. The knife scene is one of my favorite parts where they get the knife. And they're like, I've never seen a knife like that before in my life. Oh, where could you get this? And then juror number eight takes a switchblade out of his pocket that looks almost identical, opens it up, and stabs it into the table. He says, I got this last night. Two blocks away from the boy's apartment, and I got it for six bucks. Meaning that anyone could have this kind of knife. And also, after they return the actual knife, the real uh, murder weapon, I believe it's three, um, he picks up the knife saying, he killed him with this. And then they're like, and then Juror 2's like, that's not the right one. Yeah. <laughs> also showing how it can be confused. How the evidence can be confused. I really love the staging of the old man with the limp. And could he really have gotten to his door in 15 seconds? And they had the layout of the apartment building. And Juror number 8 creates that fake scenario to create the situation, a recreation of the old man in bed, hearing the noise, getting up going through his bedroom door, going down a hallway, and then opening a front door and seeing the boy running down the stairs. He was supposed to have done it in 15 seconds. This old man, 75 years old, walks with a limp. And even if you walk quickly with a limp, he still got there in 41 seconds because this clearly shows that the old man was not being truthful about what he saw that night. 
And um, I just want to talk about the, the, the idea of why I think this movie is so relevant. And obviously the most common aspects to it are, are prejudice, discrimination, the justice system, uh, still so relevant. But social classism Social as well. classism. But I think what I find to still be more relevant that doesn't get talked about is mob mentality, which I think is more relevant than ever. And I think uh, social media has exacerbated mob mentality and herd mentality, um, often called hide menta- hive mentality as well. And so this is mob mentality is the ind- inclination that some humans have to be part of a large group, often neglecting their own individual feelings and morality in the process and adopting the behaviors and actions of the people around them. So many people... They are unwilling to stand outside of the herd. They're they're um, unwilling to have a dissenting opinion from the norm, from the commonality. And I think that social media has, like I said, exacerbated that in a way that's never been seen before. Where because it's so immediate and it's so widespread, once a popular opinion gets out there, millions and millions and millions of people adopt it. And you don't want to be the person that doesn't agree with millions and millions of people. And oftentimes, especially with younger people. Your presence online is so important to who you are. It's part of your identity in a lot of ways. And so the last thing you want to do is be ostracized. And the last thing you want to do is to feel like you don't fit in or, or to take the wrong opinion and to be scrutinized for it. So I think that on social media, a lot of people are unwilling to take uh, opinions outside of their group because they're afraid of being ostracized from it. So I think mob mentality and hive mentality... Uh, social contagion are more prevalent than ever before and this film is a perfect example of the negative effects of it and the only thing that creates a second not guilty vote is an anonymous vote yes because of the herd mentality the hive mentality of the fear of not conforming and being part of the group exactly so i think conformity is another term where conformity is stronger than ever because of the presence of social media that's a that's a great point it's really interesting we see that a lot with social opinions and what's actually really funny about this movie is technically the jury got it wrong on a technical basis so i have some um high profile members of the law who have seen this movie and spoke out against it now supreme court justice sonia sotomayor stated that after seeing 12 angry men she was inspired and influenced to pursue a career in law she was particularly inspired by immigrant juror 11's monologue about the reverence for the american justice servants but she also says that when she talks to, st- to law students about the film, she instructs j- them to not think that the jury got it right and that juries should not follow this film's example because most of the jurors' conflu- con- conclusions are based on speculation, not fact. Sotomayor said that events such as Juror 8 entering a similar knife into the proceeding, therefore perform- performing outside research in the case of this matter in the first place and ultimately the jury hole making a broad wide-ranging assumptions far beyond the scope of reasonable doubt such as the inferences regarding the woman's seeing glasses this would not be allowed in a real-life jury situation and would in fact have yielded a mistrial and this is a member of the supreme court so i think she knows what she's talking about in 2007 michael Azimal wrote that the jury and 12 angry men reached an incorrect verdict writing that the amount of circumstantial evidence against the defendant should not ha- should have been enough to convict him, even if the testimony of the two eyewitnesses were disregarded like they are in this film. And then in 2012, 
Uh, Mike D'Angelo also questioned the verdict of the jury, writing what ensures the kid's guilt for practical purpose is the sheer improbability of all the evidence is erroneous. You'd have to be, you'd have it to be the misprudential inverse inverse of a national lottery winner to face so many apparently damning coincidences and misidentifications, or you'd have to be framed. In this case, uh, obviously he was not framed. So technically. They made the wrong decision, but morally, they made the right decision. Yeah, like we said earlier, at the end of the day, it's ambiguous. We don't know if he's guilty or innocent, and the jury doesn't know. But that's not what they're after. They're after objective analysis and trying to find reasonable doubt in the case. And, of course, because this is a courtroom drama outside of a courtroom inside of a jury room, the characters themselves kind of act as the lawyers going back and forth against each other in a lot of different ways. And But I still find it entertaining. It is still a movie, but so don't take it seriously because this is, if this is, this is not like every jury room is like. Yeah, I've, I was on a jury room, and it was a week-long deliberation. Really? So, so what was it like every day? So first we did the, the did you have Did you have to get a majority vote? Yeah, it's, it's 100%. Um, first the, well, first the court trial was a week and then we did jury, the jury deliberations. We only did it for, I think two days, not that long because it was, um, overwhelmingly evidence of him being guilty. And honestly, um, it was a really fascinating process. The court trial was really fascinating because it really felt like a, a, like law and order in a way because the defense attorney, was like this really suave, wealthy, clearly confident woman who just, she's, she's defending, in this case, it was a rape trial in this case. So she's defending a rapist, so she's probably making a boatload of money. These defense attorneys who are defending, you know, the scum of the earth and, and people who are real horrible people, like, they're getting paid a ton to do it. And then the, the prosecutor was like the court-appointed, like, she had this, she had like a very cheap suit and was just a different class from the defense attorney. So right there you could see, and she wasn't as confident, she wasn't as like a great orator as the defense attorney. So you could see the stark differences in the, uh, the, the lawyers just from that perspective. And it was very intense at some points. It was very emotional, especially when the witnesses were taking stands. And it was, it was, it was a tough, tough thing to sit through. And then the deliberations, I think we did two, three days at the most because... Most of the time, we were just we were just sorting through all of the evidence and just like talking it over. There weren't really that many big disagreements because it was so overwhelmingly this guy was fucking guilty. You know what I mean? So it wasn't quite like this. Obviously, this is a drama. This is a film. Um, so the, the, the conflicts need to be there. But with my jury um, case, it was actually a very simple and seamless process. And really, we spent most of our time just talking over the, all of the evidence and it, it, and it was just, it was the opposite of this where they walked into the room and made their decision already, except for eight. With us, we were like, okay, let's go through everything. And so we just spent most of our time going through all of the evidence and everybody sharing opinions on it all. Wow, interesting. But it was actually a um, pretty quick vote. Once we were ready to vote, we all voted not guilty. Oh, there wasn't a single I mean, we all, we all voted guilty, I mean. I hope so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all voted guilty. And then uh, it was funny because the judge came in after the, after the announcement he came into the jury room. He's like, you guys got it right. I would have done the same thing. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, he's going away for a long time. Hopefully. Yeah. 
Hopefully. Well, that's really interesting. Thanks so much for the uh, the anecdote about your experience. <laughs> it's really fascinating. experience about being on a chart. But trial. I did it once, so I never wanted to do it again. <laughs> Last time I, I got called for jury duty a few months ago, and I was like, no. Not again. But luckily, I didn't get called in for uh, questioning. What's it like for – do they pay you every day or – You get paid daily, yeah. How much? Like, I think it was 75 bucks a day. Well, that's not bad. Something like that. I mean, yeah, at least like it's that. something. Yeah. Do you get free lunch or anything like that? Yeah, they have. They provide lunch. They have a shit cafeteria though. It's just like it's like it's like it's a government cafeteria. Like it was terrible. I, I think we I think we all ended up like bringing food. Most of us in snacks and stuff. But yeah, it was terrible food. So funny. Um, but I was I was eighteen. Wow, that's so. Long I think ago. that's why they picked me. So was it in Boston? It was in Boston. Yeah. All right, cool. They picked me because there was a, it was a teenage girl. So uh-huh. I think they picked me. They want someone young on the jury. Yeah, that's that's insane. What a, what a wild experience. Yeah, and I mean, the screenwriter Reginald. He based or he came up with the idea because he was on a trial himself as a juror and mm-hmm. he got the idea and wanted to write a story about it. it is, this was a TV movie first. He wrote it for TV. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. You got anything else on 12 Angry Men? Um, I, I had some fun facts, but we actually said all of my fun facts during the episode. I mean, that means you're just great at your job, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you're just great. Oh, here we go. The unusual looking knife in this movie is an Italian stiletto switchblade with an Indonesian style crisp blade. Fun fact. Yeah, I just love oh, the also, ending. Oh, sorry, sorry. This film was commonly used in business schools and workshops to illustrate team dynamics and conflict resolution techniques. I really just love the ending, though, where juror number three, he's the last to vote not guilty. And we really learn that it's because of his relationship with his son. You know, he talks about how his son, I, I, I was going to turn him into a man, you know, which means he was probably very hard on him. And he's like he's ironic, contradicting because he's like, you know, boy, boys should be saying sir to their fathers, yeah. and he's completely wrong. And so his prejudice is against the boy because the boy's a kid; he's young, just like his son. In that, that prejudice against against the youth and the changing youth is why he's voting guilty mostly. And then he realizes, and he ends up tearing up that photo of his son I, I talked about earlier that he references multiple times. He's very proud of his son, but he hasn't talked to him in two years because he's probably so hard on his son. He probably abused his son, too, just like the boy's father on trial. Yeah, that his, he his son hasn't spoken to him in three years. So yeah. you can assume that there's a lot of similarities between Juror 3 and, and the father of, of the defendant. And he sees that finally and then emotionally breaks down after he tears up the photo of his son and votes not guilty while weeping. Yeah, what's what's so powerful about this film is how a ninety-minute conversation changes all these men forever, mm-hmm. changes them all, and they all go through immense transformation. They all end up questioning themselves and who they are, except for eight. Um, all all eleven other men completely change, and it's just a ninety-minute conversation. It's not like this is an epic. It's not like this is taking place over months or years with huge dramatic events. This is just. A ninety-minute conversation in a room, and it—it's—it's it's the probably the biggest moment of all of their lives. Absolutely incredible movie. Twelve Angry Men, five out of five stars. Ten perfect out of ten. Mo- perfect movie. Oh yeah. This is an all-timer. It will stand the test of time. It's still relevant. So many years later, so many decades later, made by one of the most underappreciated American filmmakers of all time, by Sidney Lumet. Where- I want. I mean, I, I think that this is actually still getting watched. By a lot of people for being an older film. You can um, check Letterboxd? Yeah, so on Letterboxd, yeah, it is 53,000 reviews. IMDb, its yeah, popularity is number 309. 
So that's great that um, because I one of the things that we hope with this podcast is that we can, um, for anyone who's younger than us watching the show, that we can you know get you interested in old films that we grew up loving, um, that a lot of people aren't really interested in watching nowadays. I, that I fear of, I fear about, but um, this is one of those movies that. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out because it really is one of those films that you're just like, this is what movies are all about. Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning into Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Don't forget to leave those five-star reviews on Spotify and Apple and become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care, everybody, and have a great day. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.